The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, power and prejudices. This year, 2024, is an election year in America, a presidential election year. And so we will be doing two podcasts a week rather than our usual one, because we want to and because we know you can't get enough Americano in your life. I am delighted to be joined today by James Johnson, who is the co-founder of Jail Partners Polling. And James is about to go to Iowa, and we're going to talk to him about the Iowa caucuses, which are coming up next week, Tuesday next week. James, it looks as though... I mean, we do have to take into account that the latest polling is quite old from Iowa. It's rather surprising that in this day and age, with so much on, on the line in American elections that there isn't more recent polling, because I think the latest Iowa polls are about three weeks old, but we should have some more soon. But those did show Trump, Donald Trump, about 30 points ahead, I think, in Iowa, on average. And so it looks as though Ron DeSantis, who's put an enormous amount of effort into Iowa, has a pretty sophisticated ground game, we understand, in Iowa, is going to still fall short and come second. He could even come third behind Nikki Haley, that's possible. And there was speculation, there was a piece on The Hill, I think it was, that he may abandon his campaign if he doesn't win in Iowa. What's your view? I think the first thing to say is that out here, there's not much interest in Iowa. Um, I was speaking to a media producer who they usually would do a live stream, they're not bothering. People are generally tending to view it this time around as a foregone conclusion. And the reason why is exactly as you say, Trump has such a large lead. I think the interesting thing is, is will DeSantis overperform his polling? Because he does have a very effective ground game in Iowa. He does have a lot of pledges locked in. And if he can end up with a second place that is within sort of 10 points, 15 points of Donald Trump, then I expect the narrative will be quite good in his favor. But it doesn't change the fact that Trump will be ahead on delegates and will be going into New Hampshire with one state down. So it's certainly looking like advantage Trump. On the polling, you're absolutely right, Trump ahead, DeSantis and Haley sort of close for second, though uh, Though DeSantis just pipping the post. What's interesting, though, is it's, it's so hard to poll in Iowa. And I think this is one of the reasons we're not seeing many polls. We're seeing stuff for New Hampshire, we're even seeing a couple of polls for South Carolina come out now. But Iowa, it's so difficult. And the reason is it's such an arcane process. People physically turn up to community centres, churches, and they caucus rather than vote. They literally go and stand in the corner of the candidate they're most likely to support. And not only that, there's also minimum thresholds. So if not enough people gather in the corner of, say, Nikki Haley in a given community centre or precinct, they can then go and move to another one. So good luck to any pollsters, including us, trying to work that one out. And that's one reason we're actually not polling in Iowa this time round, because there's too much unpredictability in there. Mm. I was looking at Donald Trump's tweets today for a piece I'm working on around the time of the Iowa caucuses in 2016. It was February the 1st in 2016. And one that amused me was that he retweeted someone saying, Iowa doesn't matter. 
after he lost on February the 2nd. And then, of course, he did, he did lose. He lost to Ted Cruz. In fact, he almost came third to Marco Rubio. And then he did what Donald Trump always does when he loses an election, which is that he said it was stolen. But it's interesting to note that he said it didn't matter because that suggests what you're saying, which is to a lot of people, the first-in-nation primary, New Hampshire, is really when everything kicks off. Is that right? Yes, I think Iowa matters in terms of who's got the momentum going into New Hampshire. So we obviously saw in Iowa in 2020 for the Democratic primary that it sort of meant that Buttigieg, Sanders had a sort of grip on those early couple of primaries until South Carolina happened. So it matters to that extent. It allows you to weed out those who are at the bottom of the pack. Vivek Ramaswamy, for example, he won the first Republican TV debate back in the summer, but he's not really made much of an impact since. You might expect him to falter. Asa Hutchinson is another person that we don't hear anything about, but he's still in the race. Might expect him to fall out after Iowa. So it's useful in terms of that. But I think really the big impact is going to be New Hampshire. And the reason for that is because it is a more competitive primary. Uh, Nikki Haley is in second there to Donald Trump. Some polls even have her within single digits of Donald Trump. Now, we need to take those with a big pinch of salt, but clearly Nikki Haley will be hoping to have a goodish showing in Iowa that she's paying for a lot of anti-DeSantis ads at the moment in Iowa, and that's one of the reasons she's doing that, because she wants to try and come second there or at least have a strong third. And she'll be hoping then to go into New Hampshire and, and try and close the gap on Donald Trump. That's really her best chance at really trying to be be competitive in this very uh, one-sided primary season. And she has one other thing in New Hampshire that Iowa doesn't have, which is that independents can vote. Now, technically, independents can caucus in Iowa, but they have to register to be Republican on the day. So it's quite a high bar, really. In New Hampshire, an independent can turn up and they can request either the Republican or the Democrat ballot for the primary, and then they can vote. Now, it's interesting because in 2016, we saw uh, about a third of people who voted in that New Hampshire primary were independents. Um, Actually, if you go back further in other elections, that's almost got up to 45%. So Haley would also be really trying to court those independents in that race. Well, if she doesn't win or if she doesn't come close in New Hampshire, I mean, do you think we could start saying that the race is about over after New Hampshire if Trump wins in Iowa wins in New Hampshire easily? Because it seems to me DeSantis is putting all his eggs into the Iowa basket and Haley's doing the same with New Hampshire. And if if those both fall short, then it's looking like a fait accompli. I think that's broadly right. And the reason is, is again, going back to the rules of these contests, once we get to South Carolina and a fair few of those Super Tuesday states on March 5th, where lots of different states have primaries, 16 states, we end up in what's called winner-takes-all primaries. Not all of them are this, but many of them are. And that basically means that whoever tops the vote, or in some cases gets over 50% of the vote, gets all the delegates. And that makes it very easy for a frontrunner to seal the nomination quite quickly. One caveat, if we end up in a situation where DeSantis does okay in Iowa, but not magnificently, let's say second behind by about 15 points, he may well stay in the race. If he does, and Haley then falters, it's not implausible that we end up in a situation where by Super Tuesday we have just Trump and versus DeSantis. Now that is suddenly becomes quite interesting because in a two-horse race, polling does show that DeSantis is the best place to beat Donald Trump. So I think we'd get there by accident rather than by design, but uh, that could be a really interesting scenario if that were to end up happening. 
of course, just as much of a possibility is that Nikki Haley doesn't decide to get out either. And then we end up with the race still split in three by the time of Super Tuesday. And then it's easy pickings for Trump. The race still split in three, but that is a difference between uh, now and 2016, because in 2016, a lot of the post-mortems of how it happened that Trump won the nomination looked at the fact that there were 17 candidates and quite a few of them, until quite deep into the contest, were taking quite significant vote shares. And now you do seem to have a winnowing of the field. Uh, Yes, there's Ramaswamy. Yes, there's Ada Hutchinson, uh, but they're not really featuring. It's really down to three already. And yet what hasn't changed is Trump's commanding lead, if anything, that seems to be growing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if Trump could have designed the circumstances for where we've ended up, it's perhaps not quite 17 candidates that he would have much rather had, but it's a pretty good sketch of where he'd have liked to see things go. And the reason is, is because these these votes are split. And obviously, he has a lot of strengths. When I do focus groups, I did focus groups with New Hampshire Republicans a month or so ago. And they talk about Trump as if he's the incumbent. When you ask them, how are you thinking about the primaries? How are you thinking about Donald Trump? They don't answer about him in relation to DeSantis or Haley. They answer about him in relation to Biden, because they almost see him as the sort of um, anointed successor because he was the last Republican president. It's been a while since we've had a a former president stand again in the primary like that. So uh, that's doing a lot for Trump picking up a lot of support straight off. In 2016, by the time of Super Tuesday, it was down to about three. And that was still spilling the vote. If Marco Rubio hadn't have been in the race in Super Tuesday, it's very plausible that Ted Cruz could have actually done pretty well in some of those states against Donald Trump. By the time it was over, the momentum was done and scuppered. So the only way I can see Trump not getting the nomination, this side of the convention, is a 1v1 race by the time of Super Tuesday. And... uh, that either comes in the form of Haley or DeSantis. And for the reasons we've discussed, it ain't looking likely. And is that disappointing to you as a pollster? It's, it's certainly disappointing to journalists because we want a story and it's not good for business to have a, an inevitable nomination. Is it bad news for pollsters? Are pollsters all uh, very gutted about this? <laughs> it's a great question. I mean, I think at the moment it's still... Well, we've at least kidded ourselves into thinking it's competitive. Let's see how the results come out. As I say, it's so hard to poll Iowa. Who knows what Trump's grand game is really like? And that's going to be a great indication. We've seen these streams of people going into halls to see Trump's rallies, but we don't know whether they're going to turn up to caucuses. We don't know for sure whether they are you know, people who are going to who are not just voting for Trump in 2016 and are locked in anyway. We also don't know how many new voters Trump's going to bring out. So there's lots of interesting questions for pollsters in in the first few primaries. If we get to Super Tuesday and it's a fair complete, then we'll certainly be pivoting pretty quickly onto the general election and and how Trump fares. Because the big unpredictable element, remember, this year are those Trump trials. If those Trump trials get a conviction, then we could see the voting intention polls, which look pretty good for Trump, change pretty quickly. What I will say, though, is there's no shortage of election races to poll in, in, the, in the US. We even ended up polling last year on the school board elections, which had a bigger budget than some of our nationwide local elections in the UK. So I hate to say it, but uh, always more for us uh, evil pollsters. Well, let's get on to the Trump trials in a second. But first of all, I'd just like to ask you about the Iowa. As you say, it's a hard state to poll. But it's it's said a lot that in 2016, Trump fell short in Iowa because of because it's a very evangelical state and there's a lot of social conservatives and that they weren't comfortable with Trump because back then in 2016, he was seen as a sort of New York liberal and Ted Cruz, who won, was far more aligned with with the evangelicals in in Iowa. 
Would you say that now that we're in 2024 and Trump seems to have a sort of stranglehold over the party in Iowa, more than in other states, in fact, in some cases, does that tell us about who is now a Trump supporter, how that's changed, how he now dominates the right in a way that he obviously didn't in 2016? Yeah, he's grown that support hugely. One reason is the Supreme Court justices he appointed. He can say to evangelical voters, I appointed the justices that ended up with the Dobbs ruling um, that reversed Roe versus Wade on on abortion legalization. He can point to other aspects of his record. We did a poll recently for the DailyMail.com and found that uh, even people who thought Trump was guilty of crimes would vote for him. And the main reason was, is that they said, because of his record last time around. So you know, his, his, his presidential record is having a big impact there. Another poll, not one by us, asked Republican voters who they thought was the most religious person out of Trump, Biden, and uh, Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney, obviously, uh, seen as one of the more um, faith-oriented nominees of the last 15 years or so. And uh, they overwhelmingly say Trump, despite there not really being much sign that Trump is a, a sort of particularly religious man at all. So he has definitely changed that. And another proof point we have of that dislocation between evangelical voters and, and voting on those lines in Iowa is the Mike Pence campaign. He dropped out in the late summer. He pinned a lot of his hopes on Iowa with a very evangelical message. Um, and he found it hard to muster any more than 6%. So the Trumpification of the evangelical vote does seem to have taken place in Iowa. And then if you look on to New Hampshire, a lot of people say that New Hampshire is less evangelical, less Christian, because its voters seem to be you know, more independent, not just because of the independent voting you talked about there, but because you know, New Hampshire people are obsessed with freedom, they're less interested in God, even if they're more interested in guns. But there, too, you see uh, Trump with a lesser, perhaps, advantage over Nikki Haley, but still with a huge swell of support. I mean, I've, I've been in New Hampshire for the primaries last two ones, and uh, I saw massive, massive support for Trump there. Yeah. It's an interesting inversion on 2016, isn't it? Because Trump seems to be you know, safer in Iowa, but a little bit less secure in New Hampshire. And, of course, in 2016, New Hampshire was Trump's sort of barnstorming victory. New Hampshire, if you are a moderate challenger to Trump, New Hampshire is is the state for you. And the fact that it's the first proper primary, the fact that it's the second contest overall is good for somebody like Nikki Haley, who is trying to make that argument that she's the sort of uh, alternative to Trump. Even there, though, as you've pointed out, there is a lot of pro-Trump sentiment. So the big question there really is, can Haley narrow that gap? And as I've alluded to, it's that independent vote that's going to be really important. If Nikki Haley can get those independents out to vote for her, and there are a lot of them, the reason the Republicans did not do very well in the 2022 midterms was because of independent voters who didn't like the Trump drama and election denying. And therefore, Republicans in very competitive states that should have been Republican pickups when Biden had such low public approval stuck with the Democrats. So if those independents can come out, then Haley could change the game. But it's also a very unique primary. Next after New Hampshire is South Carolina. Nevada is difficult this year because it's there's two contests because of some big process fight they've all had. So the, the next sort of primary with everybody on the ticket is South Carolina. Nikki Haley's home state, yes, but a very different state from New Hampshire, very socially conservative in terms of its Republican voters. 
and uh, Trump has really always sort of had over 50% in those polls. So it's not easy to jump from New Hampshire to South Carolina, even if it's your home state. Well, let's uh, talk about those Trump trials, since they seem to be the big imponderable, the biggest imponderable in this race. So far, as everybody knows, every time Trump indictments dominate the headlines, his poll lead seems to grow. And what's been interesting to me is you can understand that perhaps among Republican voters, but that seems to be the case among independents too. Has has your polling picked that up? Am I right in saying that? Yeah, so this is the big unknown. And I, I can't stress this enough. You know, This is the thing that is going to determine what happens in 2024, because at the moment, Trump is riding pretty high. He's leading with independents. He's also got a lot of Republican voters on side. If there is a conviction in these trials, the best guess, and it is a guess at the moment, we can't work out what people are saying, but speaking to voters, understanding their concerns and talking to them in focus groups interviews, I get the strong sense that that will detract from Trump's support, possibly quite considerably. And the reason is, firstly, independents, they're a little bit squeamish about this. They do think that actually these trials and court cases are probably going a bit too far, that they're quite politicised. And when that mugshot was released, our focus groups found independents actually recoiling, not at Trump's face, but at the idea that he was being prosecuted in the first place. It all became a bit too real for them. But they don't like the drama. And uh, a president in prison or a president with a conviction spells drama. So that's number one. I'd expect to see independent support fray. The second element is Republican voters themselves. We have to remember that post-January 6th Trump is very different from 2020 Trump in Republican voters' minds. There are about 10 to 15% of Republicans who are very squeamish about Jan 6th and about Trump's position since then. Now, at the moment, when you really push them, they're saying, I'll vote for Trump over Biden. After a conviction, it's possible that they don't turn out. It's possible that they vote third party. So those are the two groups that I'd be watching for as those trials continue. Yes, there's a lot of indignation about political uh, persecution. Yes, there's a lot of support for Trump's base. At the moment, in a primary season, it's only helping Trump. But when it comes to the general electorate, uh, I'd expect to see an impact there. Uh, and an issue we haven't touched on, but it's very salient in American politics, as it is in almost everywhere, is immigration. In 2016, Trump was the anti-immigration candidate. He talked about the wall a lot. He got into a lot of trouble for the way he talked about immigration. And he's already sort of using the same playbook again with this quote that everybody's talking about, which poisoning the blood of our nation. He's going as controversial and as hard as he can, and he'll probably go harder. What's your polling picking up about Americans and immigration? Is it similar to what it is, say, in Britain? Is it becoming the defining issue for a lot of voters? Certainly becoming much more significant. One reason is because of the agenda. At the moment, there's a big fight over Ukraine funding and border laws are up for grabs for Republicans as part of the compromise. So that's driving a lot of the narrative. But also, it's a bit like in the UK. Immigration is important because of immigration. If you look at the southern border, it really puts our problems in the UK into perspective. You've got hundreds of thousands coming through every month on that southern border, and voters are very frustrated by that. They don't think Biden particularly cares about it, and they don't think Biden is doing anything particularly about it. So yes, the border is continually in our top three issues. Americans are less squeamish about legal immigration than we are in the UK. There's a lot of feeling in the UK that legal immigration should be reduced. There's less of that in the US. 
partly because of integration reasons, I expect. The immigration that the US receives is perhaps a little easier to integrate than ours, I think it's safe to say. But uh, the illegal crossings on the border are huge. And there's a real appetite for action on that. We ran a poll back in December, a nationally representative poll of US adults. And we found support, not just amongst Republicans, but amongst independents and Democrats too, for a range of methods to try and crack down on the border, including third country agreements, Randa style for returns, reinstating Trump's remain in Mexico policy where you're processed in Mexico rather than across the border, upping the requirements to prove that you might be persecuted in your home country. Lots of these methods have real bipartisan support. So I would absolutely expect Trump to be hammering these issues because at the moment, they're a real, real weakness for Biden. And before I let you go, James, I should bring up the fact that a JLP partner's word cloud has been not just uh, posted by Donald Trump himself, causing much controversy and aggravation. It's also been quoted, or the fact that he posted this has been quoted by the President of the United States on Friday. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I'll take being credited by a current and a former president nine months after moving to the US. Um, It certainly meant my phone was active over the Christmas period anyway. But uh, yes, what we did is we asked voters to look ahead. What do you think Biden and Trump most want to achieve in their second term if they're elected in 2024? And the main words for Donald Trump were revenge, power and dictatorship. And the main words for Biden were nothing and economy. So Biden basically spoke about this, warning about January 6th on a speech over the weekend uh, on Friday, I believe, making the case that because Trump had shared this word cloud and he shared it on his truth social platform, very Trumpian manner, no caption, just shared the word cloud as it was, obviously a mix of genuine, but also some trolling as well, I expect. Biden said that this showed that you know we have to take Trump for his word. This is what he wants to do. He's not someone who can be trusted. So it certainly caused a bit of a, a commotion. I think it's worth saying that Biden hasn't got much to be pleased about either with his work cloud, yeah. um, because uh, Americans are desperate for someone to do something. Yes, They're desperate for someone to fix things. And uh, there is at least a sense that even if it's what you might not want to get done, that Trump would at least be a strong voice in the White House. So tough word clouds for both candidates. Yes, it was good to note too that uh, Biden gave that speech at Valley Forge. And it's nice to see a British polling company still providing the chill in the air. Uh, very good. In America. I'm, I'm, I'm going to borrow that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much, James. Do come on again and keep up all the great polling. Thanks so much. That's all for this episode of the Americano podcast. I'd like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Faroz, and urge you to leave a generous, kind and warm-hearted review of this podcast Uh, on whichever platform you listen to it. And Natasha has just reminded me uh, that if you want to be like her and work uh, for The Spectator's brilliant broadcast division, there is a job going to be a Spectator producer. Uh, It's a wonderful department and they're doing incredible things. So Natasha can now put down the gun that is put (laughs) next to my head. Uh, Do apply... I should add, uh, for this job, can be found in the bit of blurb on your screen under this podcast.